and welcome to the Neurodivergence and Mental Health Podcast. My name is Sally Nilsson and I'm a psychotherapist, published author, public speaker and mum. I discovered my autism and ADHD aged 56 in March 2021 and having rewritten my life story, I'm on a quest to advocate for neurodivergent community. I hope you enjoy listening to my incredible guests sharing their experiences of autism, ADHD, dyslexia, dyspraxia, dyscalculia, Tourette's and OCD. We talk about growing up, education, work and personal stories and how mental health has played its part in shaping lives. Our conversations cover spectrums, traits, challenges, acceptance and successes. So sit back, relax and find out what it means to feel, think and be different in a neurotypical world. Good morning, um, Susan, and it's really, really good to have you on the podcast today. And uh, I've been following you on LinkedIn and really, really interested um, to hear you've got so much um, happening in your life and the things that you do. I think the easiest thing to start with would be to ask you to introduce yourself in the way that you want to just tell, tell us anything that you want to tell us. Um, please, the floor is yours. Thank you. Good morning. I've been really, really looking forward to this. Um, so, yes, yeah, so I'm Susan Issa. Um, I currently call myself an emotional regulation coach, but that's simply because I haven't found anything better. Um, I, I work in a very organic way and depending on who I'm with, it kind of varies the role. Um, but fundamentally, yes, yeah, so I'm an emotional regulation coach. I work with adults um, and whole families and with neurodivergence and all the joys and the challenges that it can bring. Um, my background started far more in education and that's how I um, got introduced to the family. So it's always a nice, um, it's a mix of um, all the skills through that and everything I have learned about myself. Um, so yeah, that's, I, I work largely online, um, but do some face-to-face -face work too. Um, I'm, I am diagnosed with um, autism, so I'm autistic with ADHD and pathological demand avoidance um, with PDA. And that, thank you very much for that. And this is such an interest for me. I, you know, I wonder how many late diagnosed women um, are walking around with, yeah, well, I say with, you know, as um, autistic, you know, ADHD with um, any type of PDA. You know, I know I've got a bit of that as well, um, you know, avoidance. Um, I don't know if I would necessarily call myself pathological, but certainly as a child, you know, if I didn't want to do something, I was not going to do something. And uh, there's, um, there's a fantastic chap on YouTube, actually, Paul Mikalev from Australia, and he does a really, really good video um, looking at autism versus um, ADHD. And, and that helped me enormously. Did, did, have you seen that? Have you seen that video? I've heard of it. I've yet to see it. It's um, really good. Yeah, I did a Venn diagram with a, with where I was in the middle, and it does help you say, "Oh, that's autism, and that's ADHD." Yeah. You know. So, um, how long ago did you discover um, your you know your autism, ADHD, and PDA? Um, it's kind of been a work in progress over the last, I would say, ten years. The official diagnosis came um, when I was thirty eight, um, so I'm forty seven now. Um, but it was over my um, time in education and in my very first year of teaching, I had two young um, boys in my class. I, unbeknown to me, I was brand new, shiny and QT. Um, and apparently they were at risk of exclusion because of their challenging behaviours. Um, and, and their educational psychologist came in to see them a month or two after I'd started with them. And they were really, really settled. And so she said, OK, so what's your background with autism? And I was just puzzled. I said, I have no background in autism. How did you know what they needed? Um, and, and so I said to her, well, fundamentally, it's how I work. It's how I still work. I get into the moment, observe, see, feel and think, OK, this is what you need and this is what you need. I was observing their behaviours, what looked like the same behaviours. They were obsessed with opening and closing the doors. Um, and it looked like they were both getting the same thing out of it. But when you observed one of them was interested in the mechanism, the other one in the sounds, and 
and just meeting those needs in other ways. Um, and she, she was just, she was really kind of excited, but you do know that's not, that is not normally intuitive. Um, just to kind of get you thinking about that. Um, and over the next couple of weeks, she was just sending me little articles about autism. Um, and so that was my, I, it kind of sparked my interest and I started researching, thinking, okay, this fits. It's really, really fits. And as I went through education and all the courses and, um, and as you know, we're, we're brilliant at learning. And once something sparked our interest, very yeah. easy. and suddenly it, suddenly neurodivergence was my special interest and it started with autism and I learned everything I could about it and then um, started heading up specialist units. And I got my autism diagnosis first and the, the psychologist um, actually said to me, is there anything else that resonates? Um, that you've been on a training course, anything else? And I said, what do you mean? too broad a question have you ever thought adhd or kind of a, a really deep demand avoidance and we'll talk about demand avoidance as we come up um but he didn't write it on the report other than worth kind of exploring these avenues so autism the autism diagnosis answered a lot of questions it, but it and it felt like okay that makes sense but there's still something um and then eventually realized it oh he meant adhd go and get assessed it, it took a while for that to land got the adhd assessment um and scored off the charts um and um and it was then it was also identified as my demand avoidance wasn't just kind of run-of-the-mill demand avoidance yeah. that comes a lot of time with not being self-led it was more of the pathological demand avoidance um would you like me to just kind of give a brief yes please yes do yeah so there's a demand avoidance that comes with being really hyper-focused, being really needing to be self-led, being allowed to follow your interests. And, um, and for as long as you're following your interests, you can follow through things that you would like to do. The pathological side of it, um, and I know with terminology, it's the current terminology, it's always a work in progress. Yeah. Um, but it's more the fact that even if I have chosen to do something, even if I have, there's a, on my, um, site there's just a little real life account of coming out of the first lockdown and trains are my thing i love being on trains it would be my office if it could be always has been and so i booked myself a very long train journey and i was super excited i booked it i mean i chose where it was going the time the date everything i woke up on the morning of the train journey and i'm really agitated and I'm thinking, and I thought, oh, it's my partner, he's done something. I'm, I'm annoyed with him. I couldn't put my finger on it. And I had to say to him, I'm really annoyed with you. I just don't know why. So if you can just be in another room. And as I was building up towards the train journey, it started occurring to me. And, and I think once you start this process, because we've got so used to ignoring our thoughts our entire lives, because that's, it's a train <laughs> journey yeah. going on in there that I started really paying attention to my thoughts and I documented in real life because I'm walking up to the train journey, how hard it was to carry it through, even though it was what I wanted. And the thoughts of, I, I, I'm already sad that I'm coming off the train. What if something goes wrong? What if I've lost all this? All those usual anxieties. But the overwhelming feeling was, I just need to go home, get back into bed. This is ridiculous. And, and my overwhelm comes out as tears. So I could feel the tears yeah. coming down my face. Yeah. Um, but I wasn't crying. So it's just how my body reacts to overwhelm and that suffocation. And just documented that in real life. And so it's even when you've chosen something and you really want to do it and it's your special interest, it's the actual demand that becomes the issue. That the minute you book something, the expectation becomes the demand. It's not just direct demands walking into a restaurant i look at the menu and the minute i think okay i'll have number one the minute i've chosen it it's become an expectation i've got no number three no no number seven and i and if it's not a familiar restaurant where i just go in and ask for what i like nine times out of ten i will just stand up and leave and go that's to somewhere familiar that's incredible susan and i as i'm learning um all the time and a lot from you know my wonderful guests the demand avoidance, you know, I, I kept thinking it was other people asking me to do things. And I absolutely realize now that it's me asking, you know, demanding of myself. 
And if I book something on a Wednesday, I might not want to do it on the Friday. And it, for me, it used to be very much about social engagement. And I didn't realize how difficult um, I had social anxiety. I didn't realize I had because I come over as an extrovert. Um, but I'm not. I'm very, I've got a lot of introvert in me. So by the time it got to the, t the day of the social engagement, I don't want to go anymore. And I forced myself to go. And it was painful. So I absolutely understand that. And thank you very much for explaining that. I think a lot of people get so much from that. So you say in your book that you grow, you grew up feeling different. Um, and I'd love you to tell us about, you know, um, your book. In what way did you feel different as well? Um, so it, I think this will be familiar to so many neurodivergents out there. You just knew that you weren't quite seeing things in the same way. And you're looking around the room and everybody else just seems to be getting it. Whatever this elusive it was, it was you what a teacher would give an instruction and people would just act upon it. And you're the one scanning the room going, what's expected? Number one, you've got the auditory processing, thinking, is that an instruction? Has she, what, what's going on there? Yeah. Um, it's a really vague instruction. It's, so she'll say it's dinner time. And you'll look around and everyone will just start getting ready for dinner time. And I'm thinking, that's not telling me anything. You've just told me it's dinner time. That tells me nothing. Yes, yeah. <laughs> and, and all those moments that feel like little microaggressions as you're growing up, um, uh, uh, something uh, a story I tell when I'm working with young people now and um, I remember being about nine or ten and we were all talking about our favorite color and they came to me first and I said oh do you remember the the Dulux paint chart the purple the third shade of purple one point through <laughs> on the Dulux paint chart of whatever year that was and the looks that I got <laughs> yes yes <laughs> and I'm like Oh God! Oh, oh. <laughs> and it built, and you're just you shrink away, and apparently the answer was red or something. Yeah, <laughs> and and it's those moments constantly. Just um, in hindsight, I see them as microaggressions, all leading up to what turns into huge issues in mental health and self understanding. Um, but it was constant, and part of me thought, and I remember getting into these conversations with people just. Part of me thought, so I'm, um, oh, my, what's my origin? Nothing straightforward in it. I was born in Beirut to Syrian and kind of mixed heritage parents, came over here when I was four. So my colouring doesn't really give away where I'm from. And yeah. it's not, and my name isn't traditional Middle Eastern. And, and so I put it down to that kind of, okay, maybe it's because I grew up in an area that had a very strong, um, Indian community and a white community. Maybe it's because I don't fit into either of those boxes that people didn't know what to do with me. So looking for, to understand why I feel so alien to everybody. Yes. Um, and it was, it was that constant thinking, I've got it wrong, I've got it wrong. Mm -hmm. And every time you think you've got it right, and you, okay, I've got the rules, I've yeah. got the rules. They change them. <laughs> and the context changes and apparently it's not the same rules. Yes. <laughs> And, and things like the school bell, an incident that stayed with me throughout my primary years and the very little of my secondary years I attended, a fire alarm bell went off. And for me, bells, depending on what my body had decided the time of day was, I knew some bells were lunchtime, some bells were end of day. But everyone knew this bell meant, apparently, it's a fire alarm. And I, I hid under the table with the noise. How did they not know? There's yeah. so many incidents where you look back and go, how did they not know? Yes, yeah. um, and so I hid under the table and everybody did whatever they did. And I look around and the classroom's empty and I'm thinking, do I take my lunchbox? I don't know what's there. And I go down these back stairs and I bump into a teacher and I get told off. <laughs> so out I go and then assembly the next day, they said, well, most of you, well, apart from one, <gasps> got it right. And this must have been early on in my primary years, and I was convinced that every teacher would be telling the other teachers year on yeah, year. Yeah. That the set, that, and, and there was so much shame involved in that. I was yeah. petrified oh. um, of that incident. Um, and it stayed with me, and I don't think I really processed it until my adult life. 
That's awful. Um, and, and actually, you are the third in a row of my podcast guests who have told me a bell alarm story. You're the third person as far as sensory. And actually, that leads on very well to um, sensory, you know, within autism, ADHD. I mean, it, anybody, any human being can have sensory um, issues and, you know, feel and smell and touch and everything. But we do it so much more intensely. And I really wanted to ask you about one particular incident, which was the one with the GP. And you're obviously going to know which one this is. Yeah, yeah. It was the one with the GP. And what it felt like to you, it's the one about the water on your back. Can you tell me about that one? Um, so, I mean, and it was a very inappropriate one was, as I tell the story. So it felt, and that's the thing with sensory, it's, and that's confusing to others is depending on how much is in your sensory bucket, <laughs> there's some things you can tolerate and other times that you can't. And so saying to this doctor that sometimes when I'm having a shower, no matter how hot or cold, it, it feels like it's burning my back, especially um, my lower back. It, it, it feels like it's burning hot. Um, and he just said, oh, that sounds really nice. I'm a bit jealous that you can have it every time you go into the shower. And I'm thinking, that's a bit of appropriate to say to a young girl. Yes. <laughs> In hindsight. Um, but it, it is one of those other things where you go, it's just me again. And, and it was, um, and so, yes, it, another one of those microaggressions um, and feeling completely misunderstood. Um, but yes, yeah, so my sensory issues, I see in with everyone I'm working with, and it's so if we think sensory as a bucket, and everything goes in that bucket. People's yeah. voices, the temperature, absolutely everything. And depending on how full that bucket is, um, if we don't tip out of that bucket at certain points in the day, it it overflows. Yeah. We're going to sensory overwhelm. Um and sensory overwhelm doesn't look the way we expect it's not oh realizing oh i'm just too cold or it's just this agitating this irritability and there go my tears again crying is my natural response to overwhelm um and yeah so for me my sensory things when i had stuffed toy i mean getting rid of my i think i must have been 26 i had left home uh traveled done everything and my soft toys uh, were still at home so soft toys soft textures and light are my yes. thing um and lying on the ground is the most sensory releasing experience mm. um and so yeah my sensory overwhelm a lot of the time comes from being led by others yeah that constant feeling you get inside yourself i think people underestimate the sensory impact of transition the sensory impact of changing mindset, as well as the stuff we think of traditionally. And so if I've been led by others, not managed to have a break from the sensory experiences for too long, it will result in complete overwhelm. And the comeback from that is, I used to think every time I saw my dad, I used to think I'd come down with flu. I mean, my dad didn't have a great relationship, um, but there was a lot about the sensory experience, the noise, the loud. Yeah. I used to think, oh no, every time I see my dad, I, Coincidentally, have flu for two days because yeah. I would have to be in bed the next day. Yeah. When really, it in hindsight was recovery. And I understand that um, with my own father, who uh, I've lost both my parents now. But you know, they, the funny thing about mine was that um, my mum. I only realised that she was AD, at first. I thought she was autistic, and then I realised she was ADHD, aged eighty-four, and then she died. And um, so she lived her whole life without it. And my dad was neurotypical. And I know now that because of my behavior um, in my sort of late teens and, uh, you know, I was crazy and a rebel and everything else, my mum couldn't handle me. And so she would turn, turn it off because it was too much for her to cope with and hand me over to my dad every single time. But handing me over to a neurotypical father was the worst thing that she could ever have done because he didn't understand me. And so there was uh, big difficulties with that. And, and I'm really interested in the sensory side. And I love working with my clients with that, like stimming. You know, I love to ask them, what are your sensory um, feelings? You know, what, you know, tell me about them. And excuse me. <clears throat> and I share mine. 
and uh, I love the cuddlies as well and uh, I don't mind sharing I suck my thumb and I have this black furry blanket that's got to be smelly I don't like it cleaned and it if it's been in the sun it smells even nicer you know and they sound weird and you know super cool yeah, but perfectly good to me and I don't suck my thumb when I'm uh, upset or anything else it's it's a stim it's what I do I like it, it just feels nice and and I love hearing about that and um, you know, thank you so much for telling me um, telling me about that. Um, you have spoken um, a little bit about PDA. Do you want to move on from that, or did you have something to add more on PDA? Um, no, nothing else comes to mind. But as you know, with our ADHD brains, in about twelve sentences, the best PDA idea ever will come back. Yeah, well, please jump in again. Please jump in again. Um, the one thing that um, I really like Harry Thompson, and I found him on TikTok. I think TikTok is absolutely fantastic for ADHD. And from watching him, um, I listened to his book, um, PDA Paradox, and he's also ADHD autistic as well. And, and that is fantastic. So I would absolutely recommend, if you want to know about PDA, then read, listen, watch, Harry Thompson, he's really, really good. So often girls are um, excellent at masking. Well, you know, I say excellent at masking, they just mask. You know, yes. I'm 56, got my autism diagnosis, so I was masking all my life. And, um, and keeping under the radar when I was young, um, and sometimes the mask comes off and it goes back on, doing what we're told. The things started to unravel for you from um, about age 11, didn't they? What happened? Um. It, seemed, it was, a, looking back, it was such a key moment in my life. I just left school one day and I always knew I, I found school incredibly uncomfortable, but you push it down. Um, and and uh, I left school one day and I got around the corner and just, just fell to the pavement. Not, uh, my body just melted and sat on the pavement. And I was thinking, I... I, I genuinely don't know how to go home. I, I'm too tired I, and I couldn't figure out. And, and, and the tiredness is so overwhelming. It's not, I've done sport tired. It'll be, it was, that was it. I'm done. I'm done. I, I just can't move anymore. I'll just, <laughs> and, and now I decided I'll just, I'll just live here on the side of this pavement for the rest of my life. Um, and getting up to go to school the next day, remembering and that day in particular I said I stayed on the side of that pavement and my, my I must have been there for a couple of hours I it, because my parents came out looking for me um and I do remember my dad walking towards me when they saw me and he's getting really angry and I was just my, my, my brain had stopped functioning yes, yeah and I asked him he's angry he's not I don't know what's going on I, I'm a selective mute um, I will completely shut down, be unable to talk. Mm. Um, and sometimes that's lots and lots of thoughts. And then there's a disconnect between your brain and your mouth yeah. and your mouth just not cooperating. And other times it's just this whoosh. It's a blankness in your brain. It's almost like fudge or marshmallow in there and nothing will form. No thoughts, no words. And, and, that was, and it was like, I just couldn't make sense of anything really automatic pilot got in the car got home and I remember saying to my mum she was asking me how I was feeling and I was putting my hand on my throat as though I'm being choked yeah and I don't know if I said it out loud or not I said I feel suffocated yeah and I went up to my room and I sobbed and I screamed and I cried and I, and I could make sense of any of it and I just under my duvet and like you, and I've rarely, rarely met a neurodivergent child where not at least one of the parents isn't neurodivergent. Very often it's both because we're drawn to each other. We have yes. human affiliation. Um, I would say my mum was autistic. Um, my, my dad, I would say, was that, if you had to diagnose, it'd probably be narcissistic. Um, and it was quite a combination. And I remember that being the first time my mum realising that this wasn't behavioural that this wasn't me being me, too sensitive, too intense, too anything. And she didn't know what to do with me. And she looked very worried, but she just leant back. And like your mum, she just, she leant back and just looked confused. They did the whole questioning thing. Did someone hurt you? Did this, did that, did, 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 and nothing. Um, 
and that was a turning point really and getting back into school after that was virtually impossible um, and in hindsight and I say this sort of jokingly but sort of mean it the biggest favor schools and parents did to me was was neglecting me really my parents were quite they, they would just disappear for weeks on end and because it just meant that I didn't have to push through as often as I would have done if it was under the current system where everyone knows where you are all the time. Yeah. So I used to, and, and attending school became really difficult. Um, sometimes I would turn up and I'd go, okay, just get through registration, literally register in and walk out of the school gates, come back, register in at lunchtime, walk out of the school gates um, and put on reports and finding lots and lots of ways to manipulate teachers. I remember one teacher once saying to me, um, um, well, we have to get your parents involved. I said, well, well that's fine. They, they, they might hurt me, but that's fine. Oh my gosh. <laughs> you do anything. He's kind yeah. of, you do anything. <laughs> and then he went, quite an actress, aren't you? But didn't dare call oh my gosh, parents. I hear that. Sally Fusspot, I was called. I was called Sally yeah. Fusspot. I even got one of my bunches pulled by a teacher and excuse me you said earlier about the um um you know the exhaustion from it because i had no i had no idea that masking made you exhausted and that masking made you have a meltdown i thought the meltdown was mental illness i i thought i was i was total looney tunes i really did most of you know so many times in my life i thought i was, I was lunatic um and i didn't realize it's because i had masked and mimicked I mean, I did drama. I even went on festivals about Im improvis improvisation. I could even mimic the mimics, like Rory Bremno and people like that, just to fit in. But but having to do that was so exhausting, and and it was just really, really, it, it, it's hard. You know, I mean, yesterday um, I saw a client, and she said to me she had melt had a meltdown every day this week because of the pressure that she was under, not just from masking, but because not enough people knew she's autistic, even though she's got the diagnosis and Senko hadn't seen it. Oh, just nightmare. That's a story for another day. But, um, you know, thank you again for telling me that. And it's repeated time and time again, I know it is. Um, you describe, I mean, this is incredible. You, you describe being in a dissociated state for 16 years. How did disassociation affect you? Tell me about that. Um, so I... When I was younger, I remember periods of coming in and out of disassociation and saying to people, do you ever feel like you're just walking next to yourself? And they give you that look, a bit like a colour chart look. Um, and so I must have come in and out of disassociation quite often um, as a young person. And then when I was 23, I think, um, um, there was various events in my life. My brother had a motorbike accident. My mum had her aneurysm. And I was in a sort of state of, I was in trauma, it was trauma. And I met somebody who came in and in hindsight, in therapy, I said, came in and helped me and did everything. And I said, and in hindsight, no, he saw an opportunity of, there's no way you'd have been interested if you were in your real state of mind. So in your most vulnerable, um, whooped in, helped me through that period. But within three months, I found myself married Gosh. and he and up until that point I, I adore my children but up until that point I was thinking I don't think I would be able to cope with children yeah it wouldn't be fair um, and, and he got diagnosed with an illness that meant that um, we had to decide start treatment you have kids or and I wasn't aware that he'd been Kind of manipulating the facts i ended up with three children in four years um it's all such a blur and for someone with such huge demand avoidance suddenly i was more and more compliant and just say that again what's that called the what you just said normal compliant and suddenly i was just hugely compliant gosh and it and i just stopped arguing or stating my needs or anything and, and i would say i i'm saying the whole 16 year marriage i probably said 10 lines it 
Um, and so it, when I was alone with my children, it was fine. And I have three incredible neurodivergent children and, and they are remarkable. Um, but um, looking back, that 16 years could have been 30 years or it could have been a month. I wasn't there. Um, and it, it just, I don't remember details of it. I don't remember much of it. Um, and it kept me there. And, and it, I, was, I was under coercive control. But the, the thing is, when you, it's this combination, isn't it? It's when you know that you, have, you suddenly realize that you are demand avoidant. You, you stop knowing, when your discomfort becomes your comfort zone, you stop knowing when something is your sensitivity and where their unreasonable behavior starts. Yes. And when somebody hones in on that, and because of the very, very subtle nature of emotional control, and you don't trust your own instincts, um, it, it just keeps you second guessing and thinking, I can't cope with it. I, I still don't know where the line was. That's, um, I, yeah, if you don't mind, I just want to jump in because yeah. you've made me just think um, so about you know something um, that perhaps is you know what so many people um, experience themselves. You know, I was saying earlier about um, the way my mum. Um, I don't know if I said it when we weren't recording, but my mum, she couldn't really, she had ADHD at 34 and she couldn't handle my behaviour when I was in my late teens. So she'd, she would just put it away and, and she's always done that. She didn't like anything. She put it away. She wouldn't think about it. And so if I asked her to remember things, she had no memory. And I know for a fact that I'm writing my autobiography, so this is great, isn't it? And I'm not going to do false memory, but I have loads and loads of missing pieces to my memory. And I, from listening to what you've just said then, has given me a light bulb moment. I, and seeing it on TikTok and lots of people talking about memory, I wonder whether that disappearance of memory throughout your life is dissociation from experiences and maybe trauma is not the right word to call it because my psychologist who, who my first diagnosis was misdiagnosed said I had autism traits which is rubbish it doesn't mean anything and they said it was childhood trauma I don't feel as though I was traumatized I just feel it as though it wasn't very nice so I, I put it away and forgot about it and then I lost the memory and it just it was my security my defense mechanism not to have it what do you think about that? I think absolutely. And when I'm working with so many, as you know, that have been diagnosed with trauma and there, there, there is a trauma with being neurodivergent, constant yeah. microaggressions. Yes. Yeah. Those constant. And there is that whole body kind of what your body remembers and that reaction. And when I'm working with people that say to me, um, I don't remember it and all exactly what you're saying, I say it, you need to thank it. It saved you. It helped you. It got you this far, and you just don't need it anymore. So I can absolutely as a coping mechanism. And even when I'm working with neurodivergent parents, and exactly the same when their child's behaviour is triggering their own things, and I say, if you consciously remove yourself, we know how to do it, and and learning how to do it consciously and bring it back as as long as we're in control of it, it's actual disassociation i don't see in itself as hugely harmful other than when it puts you through a 16-year marriage and even then it meant i was there throughout my children's growing up um but if if we can use these things that do come naturally to us but take ownership and control over them but i think you're absolutely right it's we remove ourselves to protect ourselves and that's why we don't remember it that's incredible. And uh, this is this double empathy thing. And there's funny, well, not the double empathy thing, but the thing about um, ADHD, you've told me something, so I've got to tell you something to emphasize, but also because, you know, other people might be experiencing different things. So my mum died on the 30th of July and my autistic side, she had a good life and I understand. And there is a bit of object permanence with her as well in a way, but sometimes I can be driving along and, and, um, she'll come into my mind and there's no time to do 7-Eleven breathing. There's no time to do anything. I will, I will well up. 
but I'm just about to do something that I need to do and I have to shove her back into the back of my head because we live such a busy life. We need to feel the feelings and we need to have time. So one of the things I do in therapy with clients and with what I do, if I get um, triggered by something a, a client says, I say, right, I'm not going to think about this now, but I do need to think about it because it's coming to my head and I respect and love it what happened and, and I need to feel the feeling. So I put it on the shelf and I say, I'm coming back to that. And I make a conscious effort later on in the day to bring it off the shelf and, and hold it and say, what was that, Sally? Why, why did that feel like that? Uh, why did my client say something that triggered me? Um, it's very good for leaving your emotions at the door and, and just being able to manage. And it sounds like what you're saying, which is a really good thing. It's, it's kind of diverting, distracting and everything else. But you can't forget it. It's not healthy to forget it forever. You have to bring it back and deal with it because it's cathartic and healthy do you, do you agree with that absolutely i mean the way i frame it to people is delay not deny yeah yes yeah. and it's 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 bringing it as with everything it takes us on a tangent when you think of the adhd brain when you think of all these things they tell us are brilliant for us mindfulness being in the moment moving on immediately letting thoughts pass we're actually brilliant at all of that because yeah. a lot of it is our natural makeup but yes what can absolutely and this is one that i say is once you've had that feeling it's looking at the context is can i move into that feeling now yeah it's, you've had that you can't help that original that first visceral response that kick in the stomach the pain yeah. what you can help is where you go with that you can't it's okay i've had a chemical reaction in my body this is this is my body remembering something let me look around can i move into it yeah or do i need to delay Mm -hmm. um, and, and exactly what you're saying, it's if you need to delay, I'm, I, I'm working, I'm trying to work on something that means you can just voice note it into your phone that it goes into one place. It's just like, think of that thing at such and such time. Yeah. And, um, and making sure that when you do feel a feeling, really move into it, make sure that you're safe, make sure your sensory needs are met, make sure that you are as, feeling as safe and grounded as possible. Um, and then that's when I say move back into your body. So if you've had to disassociate for a, a little while because something like that happened, you're about to give a talk in front of a thousand people. Yeah. And, and it's giving that, we talked earlier on, I think it was before we were recording about how do we cope with the real world? Because, I mean, people get very confused and this happens so often in school and so often with, but they just have to get used to it. It, it doesn't work that way. It's, no. You can give yourself as much as you need, you're able to do the 20%. So you give the talk on stage, you get home, and you make life as comfortable as you can for yes. yourself, whatever you need, yeah. and move into that feeling. How does, what am I remembering? How does it feel in my body? Come back into your body fully. Where do I feel it? Where does it feel in, in my hands, in my stomach? And, yeah. and when I'm working with young people, the more we get in touch with how feelings feel. We spent our lives disassociating, we spent our lives moving yes. away from those feelings. And when I'm working with young people and parents go, I asked them how they felt and they said, I don't know. And and it's um and, and so I say, look, this is what this is what happens to me. And, and, yeah, and I, I love that. I really love that. And we're doing good work, aren't we clever? Because uh, I think, I, th <laughs> I think, unfortunately, out of that 80% who um, are neurotypical or who don't know that they're neurodivergent, because we're saying 2080, but it won't be that, will it? Because there's so many undiagnosed people. Um, and then there's, of course, the alexithemia side, where, you know, of not knowing your feelings and perhaps not, not getting the, the, the appropriate feeling of somebody else. Even though we're all a paradox, you know, we, we are so intuitive as a sixth sense of feeling the feelings of others, you know, things like empathy and compassion and everything else. But we can all also get it completely wrong and not understand it and take it the wrong way. Anyway, sorry, that's a, another, another conversation. You're so interesting, Susan. Uh, we're going to move on to the next one, if that's okay. Um, so how do you think uh, being autistic enabled you to have a better understanding of working with children in a school setting? Um, it, I mean, it's, I know we've said it's another conversation, but it's exactly what you just said. We might not be able to label and understand the feelings, but what we are able to do is be entirely present and almost absorb what the person is feeling. A lot of, I and mean, when people used to observe me working with young people, they'd say, but you don't say anything. 
and yeah. it's um and, and i'm very much a silent practitioner um and it's just being entirely there and getting into trying to just see the world through their eyes and it really doesn't take long I, and when i was training training other teachers and so I, I would call it active observation you're not just watching you're not just standing you're actively trying to see when they're looking somewhere looking that direction do you know what you tell me this autistic child comes in and isn't interested in anything just stares at the climbing frame hand him a camera hand him a video camera what is he actually looking at yes um make the camera his eyes and we have this boy that used to come in every single day and just stare at what they believe was one spot on the climbing frame gave him a video camera and he was following all the lines and he was following them in squares and triangles and just finding the shapes and he did oh, that with a camera yeah. and then and suddenly you're opening up his world you're putting them everywhere and yes. and and creating these shapes in his environment and and you're moving into his world and so it, it it and it's not just i understand what you're feeling it's me being autistic and that's how i experience emotions when people say to me what's going to happen in our therapy session i say i don't know we haven't met yet yes yeah totally absolutely and i, I did that yesterday and i think so many people um are not comfortable with silence and so i'm talking about my mum again she couldn't be yeah. silent let's talk all the time and that is we we should have a whole module about active listening building rapport body language mirroring mimicking all these different yeah. things but but also not even looking because eye contact can be difficult sometimes but being present being a hundred percent present and shutting the hell up oh my gosh absolutely and the thing is us ADHD we find shutting up really hard but when, you're <laughs> present, when you're there it, it it takes it it takes over your body when you're genuinely fully there and this is and I and I'm always wary early on when I'm speaking to people to talk about the, the remarkable element our brains are incredible they are utterly incredible but it is a journey it's a journey of working through or the pain of living in a world. The, the thing with growing up neurodivergent or anything different, as a child, you don't feel like a minority, you feel like it's just you. Yeah. Um, and so it, there's a journey, but when actually you look at, I'm talking about working with children in schools or working with anybody, and people say, how comes you haven't got one target niche audience? It doesn't matter who you're with. The principle is the same. Our autistic brain is brilliant at looking at those details, staying there, being patterns, yeah looking for what we're looking for and our adhd brain is brilliant as good and i almost i it, i love this feeling it's euphoric it's almost like a switch goes on if i'm there long enough and i'm in the moment long enough the switch goes on and it goes whiz 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 making all the connections yeah bringing up our filing system our short-term memory is awful i have this theory that it goes straight into long term yeah and when we need it there's that dopamine pulling it out and making all those connections oh, i see what's needed here Sometimes oh, can i add something in there let me answer yeah. that i absolutely love that because um i used to be a manager of fat face and uh, i used to live in a as well i live in a small town but i don't really go there so much now but when um i was going up and down the high street and i would meet all these people and i was quite you know it's quite a friendly person i'm not i'm a bit not quite the same now but i i would people would stop in the street and I would say to them, oh, hi, how are you? And uh, how was Jimmy's dental appointment? Because he had that different anesthetic, didn't he? And his mouth swelled up. And then he went um, to the playground and he did all this kind of stuff. And they cannot believe that you've remembered all of this stuff that, that you've said. And so all my customers that come into Fat Face, I'm not very good with names and faces necessarily, but I am good at the information they give me. And there'll be something, they might have a mole on their cheek or there might be something that reminds me that that person told me that they went to India on the holidays and rode an elephant. And I'll just go straight in with that. Oh gosh, that story about the elephant. <laughs> Do you and know that Absolutely. Mean? And having that element of trust in our brains, because the fact that if someone said, Do you know that customer that came in with a mole on her face, you're going, no. Yeah, yeah. No, the one that went into you, like, no. <laughs> and, and then you think you haven't got this memory, but the minute you've got something there to start off that process in your brain, yeah, you were, and, and, and it's all there. And it's, it's, it takes a while to trust that process. 
Mm. When I used to teach, I used to do lecturing at university and teach. Um, I still do some of it now, but it is, it's, when I used to over plan a lecture, I was the most boring human on earth. How they coped with me, I don't know. <laughs> but when you've got these bullet points, you've got an idea and then you react to the room. Yeah. That, that's our brilliance. That takes a real faith in our own brains that we've stopped trusting a long time ago when we were told you should have listened to all these messages that we get all the time. And, and that is the beauty of our brain. When we need the information, it usually arrives. <laughs> People don't understand that when I get up, because I'm a public speaker and I talk um, on the subject uh, on the uh, subject surrounding Titanic and an ancestor of mine, and um, and and I talk for an hour, and the story is in my hippocampus. It is there, and I can adapt it. I can change it a bit to my audience. I can look around the room and everything else, but I will talk articulately excitedly and I would uh, every single time I've never screwed up on that um, because it is there and it isn't f forgotten and it's it's an amazing um, ability that we have so uh, moving on a little bit I just want to make sure we get it all in because you're um, you know it's I'm really enjoying this um, this mixture of autism ADHD and PDA can be challenging how did this present itself when you were working with parents teachers specialists and local authorities um, it, it was, it's an excellent question, by the way, so thank you. And I saw that and it made me reflect on my kind of career and all the times that I thought I was the victim and actually there was a lot more at play. Yeah. Um, it was, so you have, and it's, I find when, so I obviously had a real skill and people were, and when I worked directly with teams, that, that, that it was almost they like fed into that energy and, and, and it was just magic it was pure magic created and then there was this other side where i was i'm not rigid because of all the combinations but there's right and wrong and there's this thing where people don't understand and, and it's even a contradiction within the diagnostic criteria appears to lack empathy yet has a huge sense of justice and da, da, da. yes yeah Actually, it's because our empathy isn't emotions-based, it's logic-based. Somebody needs something, we must provide it. And a lot of the problems I ran into, for example, was neurotypical world, they, it, they bond as a community of complaining about management. Yeah. And, and I would find, I would, for me, oh, we have a complaint, who can change the complaint? Who can do something about that? Of course, you go to the person who could change it. It's remembering for, for the autistic logical brain and the neurodivergent logical brain, there's a bunch of social structures we made up. We made up hierarchy. We made up authority. We made it all up. A bunch of shoulds that people seem happy to find. So for me, I remember everyone was complaining and I thought, okay, let's change it. So I go and tell the head teacher and then suddenly you're ostracized. We were just having a whinge and you gone and told you snuck away and told us I'm like, I thought you wanted to change it yes. I, I genuinely would yes. and it would be confusing because I didn't have an understanding of hierarchy my head teacher yeah. so well actually it's not my fault it's the head of children's services so logical me contacts the heads of children's services and yeah. so you're causing waves everywhere mm, gosh yes naively. and so there was um so it was always you're a mixed bag to people. It's oh, some of them. <laughs> absolutely. But, it, but it's even the same people that one minute they love you, the next minute they want to kill you. It's yes, yes, it is. Because yeah. they love your energy. They love what you're doing. They can see the impact. I took over one unit. We had children at risk of youth offenders. The first day I was there, I was stabbed with a pair of scissors. And within oh, six God. months, the boy that stabbed me had, had created this emotional regulation thing. And he just went over to his desk and moved his picture to my anxiety and to I'm, I'm getting distressed. Somebody had walked into the room and there was a bit of a kerfuffle. And our job is to notice when they move their picture. So I went over and stood next to him and looked at the picture. And I thought, if I ask you directly, it shuts your brain down. And he said, my anxiety is rising. There is something unpredictable in the room. He looked where it sorted it, came back. Mm -hmm put his picture back down to I'm back in neutral. And so you saw this and I was very good at it, but at the same time, I was irritating as hell. I had no idea, it was just a clash of things. Um, 
And so it was, you create waves everywhere. You understand the parents, but then fundamentally your sense of justice would go, actually, this is what needs to happen. Yeah. <laughs> and, you, and because of the mixture of it, you can be very, very, very patient until you're not. I always say I'm, I'm yes. really nice until I'm not. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And I will try every which way, but my sense of right yeah. overrode everything. And by the time I left, I, I genuinely did not know if it was feeling like I was constantly on the wrong side of the argument, whoever I was with. And I yeah. think if um, in, in the future, you know, it sounds far too out there, Susan, and it just sounds far too out there. But I've done so many tests and all sorts of assessments for myself and everything else. And I would love it if a company were to say, I actively need somebody who's got loads of ideas, who can't keep the mouth shut, who is a boat rocker, who's right out there, who takes risks, who just is 100% honest, is not afraid to say what they want to say and can speak to anybody and we're all equals, has a, a very high moral compass and believes in justice and will actively, not, just, not lip service, will actively say, here we go. You've just told me all of this stuff. I'm going for it because I've done exactly the same. Somebody's told me something and I've immediately gone into crisis mode. I'm good in a crisis. Okay, I've heard a problem. I'm, I'm now on my way to fix it. And then they've turned around and said, what are you on about? I only said this, <laughs> you know, and it's, you know, and it happens, it happens throughout our lives, you know, that this sort of thing happens. But, you know, we're talking about neurodivergency and mental health of course and i'm just looking at time to make sure that you know we can get it all in and fit it all in um throughout your life um how generally speaking how has your mental health been affected by your neurodivergences um so uh, from a very young age i became very withdrawn and i was called sullen by my mother and if you don't smile people won't like you and, and it's the reason i mention these things is remembering how i must have presented um, and so, and I think with neurodivergence, you know, in your core, you're actually solid. You're good. You're okay. You're really, yeah. really, you are, intelligent, you are all these things, but all these mixed messages, but nobody seems to see it. So it's from a very early age. I remember thinking you can't be yourself. You become a very muted version of yourself. And I presented as sullen and quiet. And I'm, I don't know how old I was, but I remember leaving school, was I in primary or secondary, and going to the doctors and saying, I need to see a doctor. Yeah. There's, there's things in my head. And, yes. I, and, and, and it was coming out of tinnitus as well had started. And, and I was going, there's just lots and lots and lots of thoughts and words and things in my head. And so he referred me straight away without telling my parents. I don't know if he told them. I don't know. <laughs> Yeah. And going to a counsellor and then immediately she, so she, this was within the first 10 minutes was, so where were you born? I told her I was born in Beirut, what year, 1974. Oh, children born in a war zone. Um, you have attachment. Yeah. She, okay. Okay. Well, that, that, I mean, telling a very young child that and I'm like, what does that mean yes oh your caregivers weren't there and I'm like none of this is ringing right but yes. you're professional okay so what do we do about it and um and I, I would often and I think we'd see her two or three times and then the third time I said I just don't want to live anymore I just don't want to do this anymore like, yes. I can't do this but I, I've never wanted to die and when people get confused with the it's not just because you're neurodiverse. And when you're in a world not set up for you, it's just really hard. Yes, yeah. And when you're constantly misunderstood, you're, it's just really hard. I've never, ever, ever had a desire to die. Yeah. I've, I would say daily, I think I can't do this anymore. And as you, as you say that, just as you say that, I, um, I think about um, killing myself quite frequently. Um, I have a favourite tree. I've got a cliff. I think about, you know, could I do medicines? Would I go in a garage and do the thing? And it's all very practical and everything else. If, um, because it might sound shocking to people, but if I'd had enough of the world and I wanted to get off, 
but I need to plan it, you know. Uh, I need a plan. And I'm sorry, but that, you know, that is how I feel. And, uh, but I'm perfectly happy and I think my mental health is very good. But, um, so, so tell me more, you know, because um, yeah. I think the, the biggest thing is I thought I was mentally ill so many times and I wasn't, I was um, autistic ADHD. And I've yeah. rewritten my life story and I can look at each story now in my life and say, that wasn't trauma, that wasn't this, that wasn't even addiction, it was ADHD dopamine, it wasn't this, it wasn't that. And I've rewritten my life story. So Absolutely. tell me about any particular points where you thought, actually that's neurodivergency or that is mental health. Because we're humans, you know, we get bereavement, we Absolutely. get breakdowns. Absolutely. Um, so it, mental health, I can always link to a particular event. Right. So it's when I would say when my, my brother had a motorbike accident, I was in Syria at the time and all very traumatic and I can link, my mental health was low. I was vulnerable, but it was predictable. Same as when my mum died, although grief is very complex, complex I think, for, because it's logical, that's what you know your mum's going to die, yeah. that's a whole different conversation. And, and, when, and my dad's death was more traumatic because it was a very complex relationship and it was complex grief. Yes, so at those moments, I can say it was mental health. However, the neurodivergence complicated it further. Yes, yeah. Because we don't really understand. Well, I made it easier. Grief Sometimes made it easier, actually, because of our neurodivergence. Absolutely, because we are logical. Um, and so, yeah, there are moments in my life when I can say, yes, of course, I needed help. My mental health was because it was obvious yeah um and the, the reason it's hard to separate as well is there are things that the mental health became because so because i'm neurodivergent i felt i would feel very alienated at work feel da, 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 da. the fact that i was alienated wasn't because there was anything wrong with me yeah it was because i was neurodivergent and doing things my way yeah when that went on too long and I would start getting paranoid what people are saying and all these things and, and this is what people don't understand anxiety and depression not people don't understand a lot of people don't know so let me rephrase that they are not in the diagnostic criteria for neurodivergence no they are a byproduct of being continuously misunderstood and think and blaming yourself <laughs> And that's it. And I'm just, uh, you know, just to wind up and we've got um, sort of about three minutes for this, yeah. but it's such an important one. I'm skipping the one before because this is the crux and I like to ask all my um, uh, guests this, please. How would you like to see positive change at home and at school and in the workplace to ensure more neurodivergent people are included and accepted as valued members of society? Um, I, I think that there's the the practical elements of representation 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 i think it was one of the biggest things for me as a child but and and um and so for the workplace practical things like let's really look at the way that we recruit the way we advertise the way we interview we are missing out on so much neurodivergent brilliance because even the way we advertise we advertise roles for solitary positions and talk about communication being the key and if you can't converse when you've got nonverbal brilliance just yeah. waiting to shine but fundamentally i believe the world is going in the right direction i don't believe we're as much of a minority as it is perceived to be um uh, and and apps I, I think for me if i had to blanket it all home school human is understanding we are individuals that's the key and it's and we've made up a bunch of social constructs around gender and roles and everything else when we start seeing people purely as an individual yeah and presenting ourselves as an individual and not thinking about hierarchy and authority once we remove them and thinking do you know what? we're all just trying to muddle along together what do you need and what do i need and how can we communicate it in a way that doesn't feel like a criticism to the other and it's working both ways it's so when i'm working about adjustments in the school and stuff it's okay what is the need of the neurotypical world yeah that feels threatened by what we need what's our need and how can we meet in the middle um and, and then that i believe is the key is just 
stop feeling like we're attacking each other and really have open and honest conversations um, and look at all the structures in our society and say, why do we do them this way? Why is schooling the way is it? Why is recruitment the way it is? Why is interviewing the way it is? What am I really, really, why aren't we questioning more? Yes, and I think, and, and, you're, and that's, you know, I couldn't said it better myself. And I think, um, I don't want to see the neurodivergence conversation and, and what we're asking for is being, we want more than anybody else. Um, and, and that we're better than anybody else. We're different, we're trendy, we're the new kid on the block and it's a fashion. It absolutely isn't that. Um, in, for me, I'm a human given psychotherapist and I'm also very interested in paleoanthropology and I have been since I was three years old without even knowing it. I am interested in humans. Yeah. I'm interested in us as a species we are just a subgroup of the great apes for goodness sake yeah. and it doesn't matter what what culture what diversity what color wherever we come from every single one of us are human and we all have you know we all have equal share we all have equal share on this planet mm -hmm. and, and i think you're right i think you know there's a lot more to do but people like us are getting things done and having the conversation and I'm just as happy with awareness as I am with action you know whatever the conversation is is brilliant so Susan thank you so much what an inspiring interesting fantastic um, podcast this has been um, I've been delighted having you um, here today talking with you and um, keep you know, please keep doing what you're doing because it sounds absolutely fantastic Thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure, an absolute pleasure to reflect and to do it in this space. And you've held space beautifully. So thank you. And thank you. And we'll be talking um, off, the, off this interview in great deal, I'm sure. So I look forward so much to publishing the podcast. Have a great day. Have a great weekend. And take good care of yourself, Susan. Take care. Thank you. Bye bye. Thank you very much for listening to the Neurodivergence and Mental Health podcast. Links and resources will be at the end in the show notes. I very much look forward to meeting you again. Thanks for listening. Bye.